You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay. Good evening and welcome to today our new course called Booksmart. And the course is going to explore 3,000 years of Jewish learning. And over the next six weeks, God willing, our journey will take us probably to every era of Jewish history, every corner of the globe, and to every nook and cranny of the vast universe of Jewish learning. So what are we going to be doing today in this course? What is this course going to cover? So just to illustrate a few things of what we're going to be covering here is, so just for starters, if I would say the word Torah, excuse my handwriting, or as you said, Midrash, Kabbalah, or any of these items, what do these words mean to you? Different teachings, different different books, but each one of them represents a body of teachings containing probably hundreds or even thousands of words. To be able to take one class and to try to take an entire or even a course to be able to talk about all of these items would not even be enough with even having a course on each one of them. So what our aim over here and our focus is, is to focus about the primary personalities of the works in each of these fields, what they are, to what they, um, what our aim to achieve is, and as we'll see in every single class, we're not just going to learn about the authors and these books, but we'll also experience and sample some of these books and some of their teachings, what they mean and how we can learn from them. So for example, we're not going to learn only about whom, why, and how the Talmud was created. We'll also spend some time on looking at the Talmudic learning. The same as with Kabbalah, the Torah, Allah, Medrash, Jewish philosophy, and so on. An important part of this course is to not only learn about it, but to engage and feel what was going on and get a feel for what these books are all about. So each one of these six lessons has in it two primary components. Number one. We'll first talk about an overview and the nature and the purpose of that particular genre, if you want to call it, of Judaism or of that scholarly work. And then number two, also look at a hands-on experience at that particular style of learning. That will be more hands-on as we go further on into the other subjects in the coming weeks. What's also an important component is, in the front of your books, there's something called a map. And that map looks something like this, which has a timeline with all the different genres of books, and we will reference them, and you can see them, and it's not only good to have in your book, but also good to reference it every time we mention it, but also to study it and to see what we're talking about and to get a little bit of an understanding of where, what, when, and how, when we talk about a certain era, a certain type of people, a certain time period, what they were studying, where it works and where it fits into Jewish history as a whole, Yes, it's a lot of words on there, and there's a lot of stuff on there, and you might need your magnifying glass to be able to see what it says on there. But as you can see, it's split up into seven different parts. We have, starting from the Midrashic works, Talmud, Halachic, Philosophical, Kabbalah, Hasidism, Biblical Commentary, Scriptures, Prophets, and so on and so forth. So, what that timeline map is, is basically an outline of the various areas of the Torah that we will be discussing. And you can see that there are certain markers on it, 
which for example, one, two, in certain areas, you will see that will actually be discussed. So you can see one, two, three, four, five, six, each one of the classes will be discussing another time. So these, for example, today, we'll be doing where the black lines are, that's gonna be one, Next class is going to be the pink one, the two, the three, the four, the five, and the six, going through the different parts of it. So let's get going and put on our Jewish thinking cap so we can understand, and let's start our journey all the way from the beginning. The first thing we're going to start with, and our first question is, what is the Torah? What's the Torah? Torah is, what's that word? When I say Torah, what do I mean? Not only that, when I say Torah, you can refer to either a parchment, the Torah scroll that's used in the Torah every single week in the synagogue that we read from, that we raise and we show everybody, and it's written with... Somebody just want to get the Torah. And the Torah scroll, which is... The Torah scroll in the synagogue, where somebody... where we have the actual parchment on scroll, Frankly, you can come in too. No, he's not talking about the Torah. Okay. He's got something else. Here you go. Thank you. So we have the first thing that we ask is, what's the Torah? So we say the Torah can be either a parchment scroll kept in the Ark of the Synagogue. Or we can say... The Torah can be a Jewish literary works compiled throughout history, throughout the times of history. Or let's put it better in a different word. The Chumash. Yes, it may be a very large work. The actual Torah scroll can be a very large work. But it's not quantity-wise. How many pages do you think is in the Torah? How many chapters? How many words do you think it is? The entire Torah, the five books of Moses, how many words? 80,000 words, about. It's just exactly 79,976 to be exact. It's probably, it was transcribed, dictated by God to Moses over a 40-year period from 1313 to 1273 B.C. in the Sinai Desert. If you take the Torah, it's about the average, pay, average amount of a small novel. Quantity-wise, word-wise, the Torah is not that big. In contrast, if you want to look at the rest of the Torah, when you talk about the literary works that compile, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. Take, for example, and over here, two little examples. This is the Tanakh. That means this is not just the five books of Moses. This is the five books of Moses, the 19 books of prophets and scriptures. All I can hold it in one hand, how many pages are in it? Page, very thin pages, 24 books. How much do you think it is? Not that many pages, right? Quantity-wise. There you go. It's not that much. But on the other hand, if you look at this, there's actually a program today called in Israel. It's called Oitzer HaChachma. There's an organization in Israel for the past 18 years who is collecting every single book that they can get and put it into digital format. And that it's searchable, and look at it, and any Torah, and I'm talking about not just books, but scholarly work on the Torah. They so far have 120,000 books on a hard drive. And they're not even halfway there. So now imagine, on one hand I'm calling the Torah A, this is the Torah, 
950 chapters, whatever it is. There you go. And then on the other hand, I'm calling 120,000 books and I'm not all there. It's also the Torah. So which one is it? Is this the Torah or is this the Torah? How are they both the same name? Why am I referencing to both of them as the same thing? And yet, despite disparities, they're both called by the same name. When I talk about A, I'm talking about the Torah scroll, which only has about 80,000 words. And when I'm talking about B, which is Torah, it's also Torah. So which one is it? And the answer is that really the Torah, they're both really the same thing. The Torah scroll and the general Torah are really two of the same coin. It's just two sides of the same coin. And really what they are, it's two faces looking at it from one hand or looking at it from the other hand. You know, they say a story about once a big CEO of a company hires this um, public speaking coach and says, I want you to make a speech that's going to make me sound like the brightest guy in the room. I want to have jokes, I want to have entertainment, I want to have understanding, I want to have all facets in the speech. It should be that I should come out the most phenomenal speaker ever, anybody ever heard. So, the guy puts together a beautiful speech for him, he goes up there in front of this big conference, and everybody's laughing, everybody's entertained, everybody's listening, but all of a sudden it starts going downhill. Nobody's looking, everybody's boring, they start talking. He comes back to the fellow, who the coach is a speechwriter, and says, what do you do to me? You started me off on a good path, and all of a sudden, everything right in the middle all went downhill. He says, what don't you understand? I gave you two copies just in case you lose one. Nobody asked you to say the speech twice. <laughs> Why is the Torah? Which one is the Torah? Why do I have this to have these two faces? So what exactly is the relationship between A, the actual Torah, which is here, and then what's the actual Torah, which is here, which is these hundred and twenty thousands of thousands of books that's there. And how did A develop into B and why they both call the Torah? So what we know is that we come to two dimensions of the Torah. And the two dimensions of the Torah that we're going to talk about over here is the written Torah versus the oral law. We have the Torah scroll. What is the actual Torah scroll, which we will call the written Torah? The written Torah is the five books of Moses written over 40 years in the Sinai Desert. That's what that Torah scroll is that you see. Then you also have the general Torah. What is the general Torah? Hundreds of thousands of writings written over 3,000 years. Where was it written? Any country you can imagine there's been a Torah scholar there who wrote a book. What we will call probably the oral law. Now I have to point out these are not, not exact parallels. Meaning that when we talk about the written Torah, the written Torah usually refers to the Chumash, which is the five books of Moses, the books of prophets, and the book of scriptures, as we'll get to in a moment, and we'll soon discuss that. And we, that's what our goal today is in this lesson, is to review those 24 books and see what they are. But even in addition to those uh, 19 books, a very small portion, quantity-wise, is what we call about the Torah. As we mentioned, this is the Tanakh. The oral law, on the other hand, is all these hundreds of thousands of writings written over 3,000 years from all sides of the world. In fact, Maimonides goes on to say and explain, and if you look on your timeline map, it shows the relationship and the historical time between them, where you have the five books of Moses and the Tanakh, and the rest of all the other traditions that are coming off it continue coming all from that. So... So what we see from over here is that as you can see, one is the written law, 
and one is what we call the oral law. The difference, as we'll say, as we'll soon see, is that the written law is as it's called, the written law. It was documented and written, transcribed, all by divine uh, inspiration, as we'll soon get to in our discussion today, by what level of divine inspiration, but all of it was by divine inspiration. All of it was dimensioned by God, and all of it was told to be written. As we can see in text number one on page four, the Talmud tells us clearly, the Talmud states that originally it was forbidden to publish any text of the oral law because the method was that it should be done orally. As the Talmud uses the terminology, the words that were given in writing, you are not allowed to communicate them orally, and the words that were told orally, you're not allowed to communicate them in writing. What we see from over here is that the written law, number one, it cannot be altered. It was divine inspired. It was given by God. Number two, every individual letter is significant. And what does it include? The 24 books of the Torah. At a certain point, about 1800 years ago, which was about 1500 years after the Torah was given on Mount Sinai, the oral law was, began to be put into writing. Now, there were certain students who did put their even oral law in writing, but it was only for private reasons. It wasn't meant for the masses. But the actual oral law to be put into writing was only done about 1800 years ago. This in itself, why, what, and what were the circumstances that caused it, we're going to discuss in lesson number three, but that's not for our discussion today. But more so, that because of that oral law, all of a sudden came about, what was the oral law? The oral law was handed over from teacher to disciple, originally prohibited to be transcribed, as we just mentioned. And number three, it was includes teachings of the succeeding of the 24 books of Tanakh. It's all based on it. Now, in other words, what we have over here is that the Torah was designed, if we want to call it, in that way in two distinct formats. Number one, to have a written law, and number two, to have an oral law. If we want to call it, the first one consists of books, 24 books divinely inspired by God, exactly what's written in the book, while the second one, the oral law, is by people. So the Torah has these two designated formats, books and people. Why the need for the two of them? In text number one we read that one is not allowed to write the written Torah orally, and one is not allowed to, uh, I'm sorry, one is not allowed to say the written Torah orally, and one is not allowed to transcribe the oral Torah. Until we see that a time change. But the question that we have over here is, what are the reasons for the dichotomy? Why do I have to have a written law that I can't say by heart, and an oral law that I can't write down? That means, if it's important that everything should be written, write everything. If it's important that everything should be just taught by a person, then just say everything. Why do we need the two? What's the relationship between the two? Anybody? Yes? Maybe because the <coughs> oral is meant to be a commentary, like a secret wisdom in a sense, on the what's written, because maybe there's something below the surface that not everybody can understand. So why couldn't it be written as well? Because, well, for the oral, I think it's because they didn't want this being disclosed to the public. Maybe so they're saying they want to keep it private in their yeshiva, so to speak, and not let up. Okay, well, it's a theory. Or rather the idea of they want to 
put judgment, put forward judgments in good faith. They don't want people picking up on it and confronting them, say, in the street or in person. Sure. But maybe, maybe on the other end, if they would write it clearly, then we would have people not uh, misinterpret it. But that's not the nature of people. Now. Okay, so define. So usually, it would be the more we can, somebody can argue and say yes, if they would write it down. The nature of everything is the way it's written. Everybody can have two interpretations on how it's written. In whatever, and whatever anything is written, there's always two people how they interpret it. How much more so when something is said and you don't have an actual document of it, somebody can argue that it also doesn't make sense. That means if, if what was written, you can argue about how it's written, how much more so what was said, you can argue about what was said, and then you don't even know if it was said correctly. So we can make arguments for both sides to say which one would be stronger, which one would be better. But the bottom line is we have both of them. And the interesting thing that we have both of them is not only that we have both of them, but the dichotomy in it, which is things that are written should not be said, uh, should not be said, and those that are said should not be written or taught orally. And the question is why. So before we understand the relationship between the two of them, it is important that we go through what the written Torah is about, and that's what basically our class is today, is to discuss what the written Torah is about. So let's take a little bit of a guided tour of what the written Torah is and what are these 24 books, understanding the 24 books of the Torah will help us understand the complementing of the oral law and why it's needed. So let's take the 24 books of the Tanakh, as we call it. The 24 books of the Tanakh are divided into three different parts. The first three parts are the ones that are most commonly known, which is the five books of Moses, called the Chumash, or known as the Torah. The next eight books are called the Prophets in Hebrew called Nevi'im. The last 11 books are called Writings, or in Hebrew called Kesuvim. That's how you have the name Tanakh, which Tanakh is the abbreviation of the word Torah, Nevi'im, Kesuvim. So the first letter of each one, that's how you get the word Tanakh. You can look in figure 1.3, it breaks it up for you, and it shows you the five books of Moses on the top, the eight books of prophets beneath it, and then the last one is the books of the writings, the scripture books. Scriptures, we're going to call the writings, the last 11 books. Interesting to note that in the book of prophets, there is the last book of prophets, the eighth book, which is called Trey Asar, which is made up of 12 different books, because those are 12 books of 12 prophets, but we count them as one book. Now, what are in these books? If I walk into a library, and I'm looking for a Tanakh, I would ask the librarian, where would it be? Under what section? If you were a librarian, what section would you put the Tanakh? Religion. Imagine I don't have religion. It's a country that doesn't celebrate religion. That don't tell me. Laws. Laws. It also has history. What else? Philosophy. Philosophy. It also has laws, right? Probably every section you're going to pick, the Tanakh will be able to fit in. The Tanakh, the 24 books of the Torah, it has the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the, and the scriptures. You can find in it ethics, history, philosophy, law. You pick a subject. You pick a section in the library. You will have an area where your book can fit. Hmm. The Tanakh is a law book because it has 613 commandments. It has poetry, the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs. It has philosophy, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel. It has ethics, the books of prophets. And many books in the five books of Moses as well. It also has history. Take the book of Genesis. Take the book of Joshua, Judges, Kings. 
Samuel, all history of the Jewish people. The book of Chronicles. So all of the, if you talk about where this can fit, so what is the Torah? So if you want to talk about the Torah, it has a certain type of literature that contains almost every single part and they mention that you have in a library shelf that Tanakh can fit in every one of those genres and any one of those sections. So for a person who is seeking any type of thing, whether it's philosophy, whether it's, um, whether it's uh, poetry, whether it's laws, whether it's ethics, values, morality, it's all in the Torah. You know, talking about the library, you know, this person came over to the librarian and said, looking for the self-help section. So the librarian tells, if I tell you where it is, it's probably defeating the purpose. <laughs> in the words of the Mishnah, text number two, delve into it, delve into it, for it's all in it. See with it, grow old, warn in it, do not budge from it, page eight, for there is nothing better. So what we see very clearly from the Torah, you just look at it from every single angle, you will find something that's relevant to you. But there is one common denominator that the Torah has in every single aspect, whether it's the books of Moses, or whether it's the book of prophets, whether it's the book of Judges, whether it's the book of Ezekiel, every single part of the Torah has one common denominator in it, which is what the word Torah means. What does the word Torah mean? And this is probably, if you look in the texts and talking in the commentators, especially the Hasidic commentators, is one of the most common ideas which is brought that we always have to look at the Torah. The Torah comes from the word Hayra'ah, which means instruction. Hmm. The Torah is an instruction, is a guide towards life. Every word in the Torah, every detail in the Torah, is an instruction of how we have to connect ourselves with God. The mitzvahs, whether it's the 613 commandments which tell us how we can cultivate our relationship with the Creator, whether it's the history which tells us of what the world is all about so we can make this world a holy place, but every single part of the Torah, every story, every histor historical or biographical account, every philosophical insight, every saying, every it's all part of life teaching us a lesson of what we can learn. So every single facet of the Torah is teaching us one thing, one important thing. Every single thing is telling us an instruction to our life. That's the universal message. That is the universal theme of all the 24 books of the Torah. Now that we understand the basis of the 24 books of the Torah, we'll watch a video which helps us understand the map of the Torah, the history of each single part of the 24 books of the Torah. And the video is a little long, but follow along. You have your map if you need help to be able to understand what is going on. No book has had a greater impact on human history, on human civilization. No book has been more devoutly read, more diligently studied, more deeply probed. What's in the Tanakh? Who wrote it or transcribed it? And when? Join us for a journey that spans thousands of years. A journey traversed by shepherds and kings, prophets and prophetesses, scribes and seers as we explore the 24 books the 929 chapters and the 22,864 verses that comprise the Jewish Bible. The Tanakh consists of 
three components Torah, Nevi'im, or prophets, and Ketuvim, or writings. The first section, Torah, is the most fundamental text of Judaism, transcribed by Moses during the 40 years that the people of Israel were traveling through the wilderness. This is the text inscribed in the Torah scroll, the most sacred object in Judaism. The Torah consists of five books, the five books of Moses, also called the Chumash. The Torah recounts the origins of the Jewish people, but even more importantly, it contains the 613 mitzvot, divine commandments, that define our mission in life and the covenant between God and the people of Israel. The book of Genesis describes the creation of the world and the formative events of early human history. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel, Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, and the lives and deeds of the founding fathers and mothers of the people of Israel, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Rachel and Leah, Joseph and his brothers, Genesis also includes the seven Noahide laws and three of the 613 mitzvot of the Torah. The book of Exodus describes the Exodus from Egypt, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and the construction of the tabernacle. It includes the Ten Commandments and 101 other mitzvot. The book of Leviticus records 247 mitzvot commanded by God to Moses pertaining to the temple service, the kosher dietary laws, the festivals of the Jewish year, and a variety of ritualistic, social, and civil laws, including the maxim, love your fellow as yourself. The Book of Numbers recounts the events of the Israelites' 40-year journey through the wilderness. It also includes 52 mitzvot. The Book of Deuteronomy contains Moses' final address to the people of Israel before his passing. It reviews many of the events and laws of the previous three books, as well as 200 additional mitzvot. A Jew lives with the Torah 365 days a year, and the five books are divided into 54 sections, or parshiot. Each week, another parsha is publicly read in the synagogue, and each parsha has seven sections, so that each day of the week has its distinct lesson of the day to study and apply to our lives. The eight books of the prophets section of Tanakh record the words and deeds of the prophets who brought the word of God to the people in the centuries after Moses. The first four books in this section are primarily historical, recounting the events from the children of Israel's settlement of the Holy Land to the destruction of the first temple. The book of Joshua describes the conquest of the Holy Land and its apportionment among the twelve tribes of Israel. Judges describes events during the 14 generations of the judges who led the people of Israel in the centuries after the passing of Joshua. The book of Samuel recounts the lives and deeds of the prophet Samuel, King Saul, and King David. And Kings recounts the history of the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Isaiah was sent by God to convey prophecies of consolation over the destruction of the Holy Temple and the exile, and to describe the future messianic age of peace, perfection, and divine revelation. Jeremiah warned that Jerusalem will be destroyed because of the people's sins and injustices, but also conveyed the promise that the exiles to Babylon will return after 70 years. 
Ezekiel described his vision of the divine chariot that is the source for many of the mystical teachings of Kabbalah and of the third holy temple of the messianic era. The last book in the prophets section is composed of 12 smaller books recording the prophecies of 12 prophets. Hosea, who God instructs to marry an unfaithful woman in order to experience firsthand God's interminable love for his people despite their unfaithfulness. Amos, who denounces the exploitation of the weak and poor by the rich and powerful, and speaks about the hypocrisy in serving God while failing to practice justice and charity. The story of Jonah, which teaches the power of prayer and of repentance. Joel and Nahum, who foretell the divine judgment of the nations who persecuted the people of Israel. Obadiah, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah prophesy the future messianic age of peace and perfection when all nations will unite to serve God. And the last three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, encourage the people during the difficulties of their return from Babylon to build the second temple. The words of the prophets are also incorporated into the annual Torah reading cycle in the form of the Haftorah, selected portions from the prophets which we read after the public Torah reading on Shabbat and other special occasions. The third section of Tanakh, the writings, include 11 books composed by King David in the Holy Land some 3,000 years ago. The Psalms of the Book of Tehillim express the yearnings, tribulations, and exaltations of the Jewish experience in every land and in every generation. Psalms form an integral part of every Jewish prayer and are read, wept, and sung at every occasion from a birth to a funeral. Whenever a Jew has the need to plead for divine assistance, celebrate a triumph or simply talk to God, the verses of Tehillim give voice to the outpourings of his or her soul. Also in the writing sections are three books containing the wisdom of King Solomon. Proverbs contains aphorisms on the virtues of wisdom, hard work, and a moral life. Song of Songs is a pastoral love song that metaphorically describes the relationship between God and Israel. Ecclesiastes speaks of the transience of life and the futility of worldly pursuits. Also in the writing section, the book of Job confronts the question, why do the righteous suffer? Ruth tells the story of the Moabite princess who converted to Judaism and became the ancestress of King David. Lamentations mourns the destruction of the Holy Temple and the exile of Israel. The scroll of Esther recounts the story of Purim, when Haman's plot to annihilate all the Jews in the Persian Empire was foiled by Queen Esther and Mordecai. The visions and deeds of Daniel, the Judean prince who served in the royal courts of Babylonia and Persia, are in the book that bears his name. Daniel also prophesied on the rise and fall of nations and the timing of the Messianic redemption. Ezra Nehemi describes the Jewish people's return from Babylon, the reestablishment of their commitment to the Torah, and the building of the Second Holy Temple. Chronicles contains a summary of the whole of biblical history. Five of the books of the writings section, also called the Five Scrolls, are publicly read in select times of the year. The Scroll of Esther on Purim, Ruth, on Shavuot, Song of Songs on Passover, Lamentations on Tisha B'Av, and Ecclesiastes on Sukkot. 
1,000 years after the revelation at Sinai, in the first generation of the Second Temple era, the 120 prophets and sages of the Great Assembly canonized the 24 books of the Tanakh. This is the written Torah, upon which all subsequent Torah learning and discussion is based. So as you saw, the 24 books of the written Torah are divided in three categories. Torah, prophets, and writings. And many ask a very good question. What's the significance of splitting it into three different parts? <coughs> it seems like, at first glance, that the sequence is just historical. First came the Torah, then came the prophets, then came the scriptures. But if one looks a little bit deeper into it, you will see that the contents of the 24 books are not necessarily um, geographical. I'm sorry, not, I'm sorry, not necessarily historical. And therefore, in fact, if you look at the infographic, you will see that they come at different times. Over here, we took about the different times. You have the Torah. I will get to that in a moment. Just, I'm sorry, on your map. You will see that there were different times, and some of them were actually overlapping. For example, the book of Job was transcribed by Moses, and so on and so forth. So not necessarily do, are they historical. So what's the reason why they were split up? And what we're going to, going to see today is that the reason why they were split up is because each one of these were three modes of different divine communication that God gave over to the Jewish people. The first one is the Torah. The Torah has the greatest level of divine communication that was, said that, that was given directly from God. Fifty days after the Jewish people left the exodus of Egypt, on the 6th of Sivan, Moshe is told to come up to Mount Sinai, and God gives him the Ten Commandments. When God gives him the Ten Commandments, he studies with him the entire Torah, and from then, God told him exactly what to transcribe, and what every single word should be in the Torah. You will notice in general throughout Judaism, the number 40 is very much used when it comes to studying and teaching. The Talmud says it takes 40 years for a student to fully comprehend what he learned from his teacher. So therefore we find the number 40 used. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, the Jewish people were in the desert for 40 years, and so on and so forth. But Moshe wrote all those commandments, recorded all these events leading up to the giving of the Torah, all dictated by God how he should write them. Until the last entry of the Jewish people entering the land of Israel was all transcribed by Moses. In fact, on the day that Moses died, he gave each one of the tribes one of these um, one of these Torah scrolls. One was then left in the Holy of Holies to use as a primary copy that they can use to transcribe other Torah scrolls for future generations. But where it came from was a direct communication that Moshe had with God. In fact, the prophecy that Moshe had with God was that part of the Torah which we would call a, div a divine revelation, a direct communication. As in the words of the Torah, you can see it in text number 3, God would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his fellow. That means the same way, and of course this is metaphorically speaking, in comparison to the other prophets, this type of revelation that was given to Moses was a direct communication. If you look continuing in text number 3, if there be a prophet among you, I, God, will make myself known to them in a vision. I will speak to them in a dream. Not so is my servant Moses in my house. All he is trusted. Mouth to mouth I speak with him in a vision. Not in riddles. He gazes in the image of God. What's the difference? 
Over here, God is telling us, and over here, the Torah is telling us the difference between different types of prophets. A regular prophet would receive their type of prophecy, not necessarily so clearly, sometimes in a riddle, sometimes in a dream, sometimes in a metaphor. And they would have to work out what that prophecy directly is and what, how it correlates and how they should give over that message. It was up to the prophet to be able to decipher it. While Moshe was given a direct communication, there was no ifs or buts. This is what he said, and was said clearly to Moshe what had to be done. The communication was direct. It was via not the mind, but mouth to mouth, so to speak, the mind of Moshe. Moshe became an absolute conduit, an amplifier, if you want to call it, of what God's message was. That's the way the five books of Moses was written. The five books of Moses was written that the divine presence spoke from Moshe's mouth. It was an intimate relationship. It was a direct relationship. While we look at the role of the prophets, this is the primary difference between the book of the prophets and the book of the Torah, and that's why no prophet can ever contradict anything that it says in the 613 commandments. The book of the prophets does not say laws. The book of prophets, all the laws are contained in the five books of Moses. We don't learn laws from prophecy. Look what it says, the limits of prophecy in text number 4. 48 prophets and 7 prophetesses prophesied to the people of Israel. And they neither subtracted from or nor added to what was written in the Torah. As a rule, a prophet cannot add or subtract what is given in the Torah. So what's a prophet? What's the purpose of the prophet? So you will see, and if you notice and you read many things of what the prophets do, number 1, they try to get people to repent and do what's right. For example, Jonah went to the city of Nineveh. During the book of Judges, the Jewish people were going astray with idolatry. Elijah with the people of Baal and Jezebel, who he got them to be able to return from their bad ways. So if you look in all the different places of the 24 books of the Tanakh, and most of them that talk about the prophets sent to the Jewish people, was to inspire them to do what God wants them to do. Number two, to warn them of a future calamity and how to avoid it. For example, what's the whole book of Jeremiah about? What's the book of Lamentations about? What's the, what did Elijah do? Most of the, what did Isaiah do? What did Elisha do? Many of the prophets, their job was to come to the king of the rulers of the Jewish people at the time and say, if you don't behave, if you don't shape up, you'll be shipped out. And that's what happened to the ten tribes of Israel. They didn't shape up. They continued to serve idolatry and therefore they were chased out of the land of Israel. Who told them that message? Was the prophets. Number three, what does it have? What's the book of Isaiah about? Salvation. Telling the Jewish people about what will happen at the end of times. What will happen if they do behave? What about the coming of Moshiach? That's all in the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezra. All these books that talk about the, what will happen in the promises and the future of salvation. But any legal element of Torah, any do's or don'ts of the Torah, are all in the five books of Moses. All the other 19 books are more about ideological, moral, inspirational teachings of the Torah. So that's the second section. Now what about the writings, the scriptures? As for the third part of the Tanakh, the 11 books, we call it writings or scriptures. And the reason why I'm using writings versus scriptures is because scriptures can refer to all of them, as it means a written law. But these books degree a more of a greater human involvement. What do I mean by that? There's a level which is called Moshe's prophecy. There's a level which is called prophecy. And then there is something called in Hebrew, Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration. 
While many things are inspired, or they have a metaphor, or to be able to understand it, a practical difference would be, when a prophet receives prophecy, the verse tells us, in a certain terminology, they went as if into a trance, into a craziness. They were not in this world. They went into a total subliminal type of way of believing, or whatever it was at the time. When you saw a prophet get prophecy, they were completely not here. Because it was such a divine inspiration that came into them. While Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration, was more, while it was not an explicit communication, but it was a communication where the prophet understood, appreciated that they're getting something which is not on their own accord, something they have to relate to the Jewish people, but it was more of a relaxed and more of a human involvement. Let's see the way Maimonides explains it, more of a lower level of prophecy that they got. He says it as follows. Text number five. The person feels as if something has come upon them, as if they have received a new power that drives them to speak. They speak words of wisdom, compose hymns, or exhort their fellows with useful advice, or discourse on matters that communal leadership or theology, all this while they are awake and in full possession of their senses. Because as, you mentioned, as I mentioned, prophecy meant that they were not always full possession of their senses and not always awake. Such a person is set to speak by Ruach HaKodesh. It was through this kind of divine inspiration that David composed the Psalms, Solomon composed the book of Proverbs, the Spuliastics, and the Song of Songs. Also Daniel, Job, Chronicles, and the rest of the writings were written in this manner. In reference to such Ruach HaKodesh, David says, The Spirit of God spoke to me and His word was on my tongue. The Spirit of God caused them to speak these words. What do we find in the common denominator between all these three? All of these three forms are all divine forms of prophecy. King David uses the terminology, the Spirit of God is in me and his words are my tongue that God gave him what to speak, but it, wasn't, it was more of a lower level of prophecy when he wrote the book of Psalms. But what we see from here is that all three of these, all three sections of Tanakh are a divine revelation. It was not something that the human being came up with their own. Whether it was Moses from the five books of Moses that it was a direct prophecy, or it was the prophets that got a prophecy which was a little greater, but they had to just put the pieces together, or it was a divine inspiration. Once the last prophets came about, that means about a thousand years ago, at the first generation of the second, tem second temple, prophecy has officially ended by the Jewish people. That's why the last book of the 24 books of Tanakh end with Nehemiah with his time period and begin the oral law begins with the sages of the great assembly so prophecy ceased to exist from then the last three prophets are known as Haggai, Zechariah, Zechariah and Malachi or Malachi those are the last three prophets and from there began already the sages of the great assembly who they put together this concept of the Tanakh the 24 books of the Tanakh and they were the ones, and this was how they determined what it was. So anything that was through a divine revelation, all the Torah works that were compiled up until then, all of these things were given by divine inspiration. That's what we define as the written law. That's what's defined as the Tanakh. That's what's defined as the 24 books of the Torah. Just to get a little sampling of what all of these books are. So if you go to pages 30 through 51... And we'll just pick one of each one so we get a little sampling of what each one of these readings are. And you're more than welcome to read on your own a little further. 
but uh, due to time constraints, we're just going to read one sampling of each one. So you have on page 30, you see the blue, that's the Torah. The first one is in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and the world was desolate and void of darkness. Face in the deep in the spirit, God hovered upon the face of the water, and God said, there shall be light, and there was light. And again, all this was given to Moses, how he should be dictated and written. And as you can see, there is from the oral Torah on every single one of these items on the side and the margin, there's the oral Torah explaining things. If you go a little bit further, if you go a little bit further to the Book of Prophets, I think that's the next color, and that would be on page... Just go a little warm. That's on page 38. You see Prophets, the first one. For example, Nathan's rebuke of King David. Mm -hmm. The thing that David has done in the bad in, God, uh, bad in the eyes of God, and God sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said... To him, there was two men, and one in the city, one rich and poor. The rich man had many ox and herds. The poor man had nothing, save one. And if you can see, this is the story of David, Nathan rebuking David for that he took by Shephan and gives him first the metaphor. David recognizes the metaphor. And as you can see, David finishes off. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against God. This is again, as you can see, as we mentioned, the prophet is not a law here. This is a rebuke to David. The next one from Isaiah tells us about the future redemption. Isaiah again tells us about the Messiah, the prophecy of the dry bones from Ezekiel. This is Micah tells us what does God want from us. As you can see, the prophets are here to tell us more about uh, rebuke, salvation, prophecies of what's going to happen in the future, but not about codes and laws. You go a little bit further, you have writings. 42. Page 42 tells us now the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, I'm sure you're many familiar with, Psalm 23. Uh, you have there on page 43 is the song of David, God is my shepherd. You have all this poetry. You have Psalm 104, again, this type of poetry that's here. And Psalm 121, the guardian of Israel. And if you look, as I mentioned, if you go to Book of Proverbs, student page 46, many of these... 20. Sorry? I commented that 20. Psalm 20. Oh. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, it's, so you have also over here page 46... Just a few examples of selected sayings which are very common today that you may hear many people say, know God in all your ways, go to the ant you slug, see her ways and become wise. And all these are from the book of Proverbs. Again, these are moral, ethical teachings of how a person should behave. These are not necessarily laws, but this is more of how we uh, should be as people. For example, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like them. Uh, do not boast for, for tomorrow, for you don't know what that way will, that they will bear. A better open rebuke than concealed love, and things of that nature that you can see from the book of Proverbs. So, and, and as you can see, there's plenty here to read. I'll we'll leave that selected readings for you to do on your own. There's a lot of good stuff there. But let's take it a step further. What we have so far is, and let's go back to our question that we asked in the beginning. What's the need? So far, let's just, before we, let's summarize, we have so far. The written Torah is the part of the Torah that was communicated by divine revelation, whether it was direct communication from Osha, or whether it was through the prophets, through the divine inspiration, as we call it, Ruach HaKodesh. What about the oral? Where did that come from? We started off our class saying that there are two types of Torahs. Right? There was the Torah that we hold in the synagogue and the Torah of the 150,000 books that continues to go and grow and 150,000 is an underestimate of what there is. We, if the Torah that the prophets have came from divine inspiration 
Where, where then did the oral law come from? Did somebody just make it out of his hat? What are the number of statements that we talk about the oral law? Where do they come from? So we're going to look at two statements here and seemingly conflicting statements of where the oral law comes from. The first text we're going to be reading is from the Jerusalem Talmud. As we're going to learn later on, there's two Talmuds, one that was studied in the Jerusalem and one that was studied in Babylonia. And this one is a quote from the Jerusalem Talmud following the completion of the Mishnah. And it says as follows, text number 6, page 12. Scripture, Mishnah, Talmud, and Agadah. Even what a proficient student is destined to innovate were already said by Moses and Mount Sinai. Okay? Let's analyze this statement for one just a moment. What does it say here? Scripture, Mishnah, Talmud, and Agadah. Putting scripture with the same line as the Mishnah, which is the oral law, and the Agadah, take it even a step further. Anything a proficient student innovates, where was it given? Moses on Mount Sinai. So over here we have an unequivocal statement that anything that somebody studies, regardless of what level it is, oral law or written law, where is it from? On Mount Sinai. It is equating the written law with the oral law. That means there is no difference. That means anything that you have, including all the oral traditions, were all handed down through the generations of its divine origin, communicated initially from God and Mount Sinai. How does this work? And then why is the written law? And why is one the oral law? Well, that's one side of the picture. On the other hand, we have another principle, that the Torah is not in heaven. That where do we make the laws? Where is the law decided? Here on this world. You come in front of a Beth Din, a biblical court, a rabbi has to see what the situation is, and decides what the law is. That means the Torah was given to us mortal human beings to understand, interpret, apply, and use our finite seichel, I use our, our own intellect. And this principle is most powerfully demonstrated by the following Talmudic account that happened. It describes a story that happened in Mishnahic sage by the name of Rebbe Lazar. He had a disagreement with the other sages, as pretty common in the Talmud. But this one took it to a whole new level. Text number seven. Read the following story. On that day, Rabbi Eliezer brought them all sorts of proofs, but they were rejected. So he said to them, if the law is as I say, this water channel will prove it. The water channel began flowing backwards. Said they to them, one does not cite halachic proof from a water channel. Rabbi Eliezer said to them, if the law is as I, excuse me, if the law is as I say, the walls of the study hall will prove it. And the walls of the study hall started leaning in and began to fall. Rabbi Yeshua scolded the walls. If the Torah scholars are contending with each other in matters of Torah law, what is the nature of your involvement? The walls did not fall out of deference to Rabbi Yeshua, and neither did they straighten out of deference to Rabbi Eliezer. They still remain leaning until today. Rabbi Eliezer then said to them, If the law is as I say, now he's using the biggest power he got in his toolbox, let it be proven from heaven. There then issued a heavenly voice which proclaimed, What do you want of Rabbi Eliezer? The law is as he says. You would think, okay, if Rabbi Eliezer got a voice from heaven to say the law is like him, he would be the winner here, right? 
Rabbi Yeshua stood on his feet and said, The Torah is not in heaven. What is the meaning of the statement that is not in heaven, said Rabbi Yirmiya? As the Torah has already been given here on Mount Sinai, we take no notice of heavenly voices. For you, God, have already written in the Torah Mount Sinai, follow the majority. What is the Torah law? Regardless of what heaven's perspective is, regardless of what heaven has to say, what do we say? The Torah is not in heaven. Who decides what the law is? Us mortals. Us human beings. Maimonides applies this principle to Jewish law as follows. Text number B. Listen to what Maimonides says in, the, in Maimonides, in his introduction to the Mishnah. Page 15. If 1,000 prophets, all on the level of Elijah and Elisha, that means these are the greatest prophets you can imagine, have one opinion on the matter of Torah law, and 1,001 sages have another opinion, we must follow the majority. And the ruling is according to the opinion of the sages. Why? Because they have one more. They're the majority. Similarly, if a prophet testifies that God has revealed them in the law regarding the commandments in such and such, or that the opinion of a certain sage is the correct one, he is a false prophet. As it is written, it is not in heaven. God has not permitted us to learn the Torah from the prophets, but from the sages basing themselves on logical arguments and opinions. What do we see from these two statements? What is the oral law? given directly from God, or is it a project of logical examination? Seemingly, from these last statements we learned, it seems like the oral law is based on our own logical examination. Nothing to do with God. So which one is it? One statement tells me it was given from Mount Sinai. The other statement tells me, no, you've got to work on it on your own. It's your own logical opinion seemingly contradictory statements from the Talmud to saying of what's the origins and what's the definition of the oral law. But as you know, the truth is that they're both correct. And how are they both correct? If we look at the actual statement itself, we will see if this is actually a contradiction. So let's see what it says here. On one hand, the Jerusalem Talmud is telling us that the whole Torah, including everything that was authored through the generations, was already given to Moses on Mount Sinai. But then one second, what does it say? Anything a student will innovate. If it was all given for moments on Mount Sinai, then what are you innovating? How can you innovate if it was already given? That seems like a contradictory in terms. In the terminology of the Torah scholars, they call it a chidush. I got a new idea. How is it a new idea? If it was already given in divine revelation. If it was already given in Mount Sinai. Make up your mind. Is it new as a mountain? So it seems like a conflict, a paradox in the actual statement. Everything that a student will innovate was given in Mount Sinai. If it was given in Mount Sinai, then it's not an innovation. The paradox takes it even a step further. In a story that the Talmud tells us where Moses meets Rabbi Akiva. And the, Moses, and the Talmud tells us the following account in text number 9. When Moses... Oh, where did Moses meet Rabbi Akiva? Let's see the story here. When Moses ascended on high, he found God attaching the coronets of the Torah letters. Said Moses to God... You know, when you look at the Torah, you see these little crowns on top of it. So he says, why? Says Moses to God. Master of the world, why have you need for these? Why are you putting these crowns on the Torah? God said to him, there will be a man 
some generation hence, whose name is Akiva, the son of Joseph, and he will expound bounds and bounds and pounds of laws from each of every little, every title. Said Moses, Master of the world, show him to me. Moses was sitting behind eight rows of Rabbi Akiva's disciples. That means the way it used to work was that the teacher would sit in the front, and the lower level you were, the further back he sat. And he sat on the eighth row. But he did not understand what they were saying. Moses didn't understand what Rabbi Akiva was saying. He became despondent. Until they reached one teaching, and Rabbi Akiva's disciples asked him, Master, from where do you know this? Said Rabbi Akiva, this is a law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And Moses' mind was eased. So what's the story telling us? Moses himself didn't know the law, that he had to sit in the eighth row of Rabbi Akiva's students. But at the same time, it was a law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Make up your mind. Did he know or didn't he know? Did he just have a, a, a senior moment? Then he forgot it. What happened? Circular. And this paradox we can explain on a number of different levels. But on the most fundamental level, we can explain it by using an analogy of biology. Using an analogy of biology, and if you take the illustrations that you see in your book on page 18, figure 1.5, A and B. What is A? A strand of DNA. B is a person. A is a microscopic string of atoms, while B is an organism comprised of trillions and trillions of cells, dozens of organs and limbs, millions of thoughts, feelings, and experiences. But if I look at A, what is A? A encapsulates everything that's in B. A is just the programming of whatever is going to be in B. If you look at the, da- the metadata of any program or the back source of any type of website, you'll see a bunch of numbers and things. The code. It's the code. <laughs> but what is the body of it? It encapsulates everything that you see. On the front is all that code and all those numbers in the back. This is exactly the answer to the paradox of the proficient student who innovates Torah ideas that were already set to Moses on Sinai. This is what Rabbi Akiva was telling Moses that it all came from Sinai. Everything that's in B already was an A. That means everything that you see in this human being is in the DNA encapsulated all there, is all in that code. The only difference is that you need a womb. A womb is what cultivates, what brings about all these DNA cells and brings them into one big beautiful organism. Exactly what's happening over here is as well. In other words, the Torah is a product of a partnership between divine revelation and human interaction, human intellectualism. That means there is a Torah on Mount Sinai that God gave everything to Mount Sinai, gave everything to Moses in a form of cap of cells. It now needs a womb to be able to cultivate it. And that's the human intuition. That's the human intellect. That's the person that studies Torah. The human mind is charged that it should take those cells and put a microscope on it, cultivate those cells, innovate, and that's the word innovate here, is to bring out what was there originally. That means to take what was already there and bring it out to the fore. So then we ask the question, in the beginning of our lesson, why the need for two formats? Why a written law and why an oral law? 
Either write it all or say it all. Either it should be all divinely inspired or it should all be by the human intellect. Either show us the DNA and let us just deal with the DNA or give us the ready-made organism. Why do we need both? And there's a number of reasons, but let's focus on one of them for today. And that is probably the most significant reason presented in the following text in the Medrash. And says the following story, and you'd love this story. Listen to this. Text number nine, text number ten, page nineteen. He says as follows. I was once traveling on the road when a person encountered me. This person had scripture, but he did not have Mishnah. He said to me, Master, scripture was given to us on Mount Sinai. Mishnah was not given to us on Mount Sinai. I said to him, My son, both scripture and Mishnah issued from the mouth of the Almighty. What is the difference between them? The following parable was said to explain this. Now listen to the story. There was a king who had two beloved servants. He gave a measure of wheat to one of them and a measure of wheat to another. He also gave a bundle of flax. The wise one among them took the flax, wove a beautiful cloth out of it, took the wheat, made fine flour from it, sifting it, milling it, kneading it, and baking it. He arranged it on a table, spread a beautiful cloth over it, setting aside for when the king would come. The foolish servant said, The king gave me the flax and the wheat. Why should I do anything with it? The king arrived in his palace and said to his two servants, My children, present me what I have gifted you. The first one brought the bread, made a flour on the table with a beautiful cloth spread over it. The other brought out the wheat in the box and the bundle of flax on top of it. Now which of these servants is more precious to the king? When the Almighty gave us the Torah to the people of Israel, he gave us wheat from which to make fine flour. He gave us flax to which to weave a cloth. God found, obviously, a way to communicate the entire Torah to the Jewish people. But he wanted us to get involved. He wanted the human involvement. He wanted the human being to think, to become part of it. He wanted a partnership. If God wanted, if the king wanted to give a servant flour, uh, bread, he could have given him bread. You think the king didn't have bread? But he gave him the wheat because he wanted the servant to be part of the making. He wanted him to get part of it. The same thing is also God gave us the Torah. He gave us the written law. The dynamic of the oral law is God's way of saying, I want you to join me. Using your human intellect. Using your seichel. Making sure and expressing it and explaining it and innovating. And making it because this was part an integral part of the process of how the Torah and the wisdom of the Torah is given to his creations. So what God is actually doing over here is that every single part of the Torah, every single part of it, is divinely inspired, comes from God, and every single part of the Torah, whether it's the written Torah or the oral Torah, are a byproduct of this divine and human collaboration on some level. Even the part of the Torah, which is Tanakh. Who did he give the Torah to? Who transcribed it? Even the highest level of Torah, which is the divine wisdom directly articulated by God. But he needed a human to write it down. So every single aspect of the Torah, pick whatever you want, always has a collaboration with some type of human in it. Even though the written Torah, while the divine revelation may be more dominant, the human involvement is secondary. While the oral law, the human involvement may be the main part of it, and the divine inspiration is secondary. But regardless, there is always a human involvement, whether it's on the level of prophecy, whether it's on the level of 
whether in the level of divine inspiration, but there's always a level of the human involvement. Whether it's the Torah that Moshe transcribed, the prophecy who had to who had to, so to speak, decodify what God was telling them in those metaphors and those messages, or the divine inspiration that came to David while he was writing the Psalms to be able to transcribe it and put it down, it always came through some type of human interaction and involvement that brought it to the fore. On the other hand, even the most human component of the Talmud, or of the, any part of the oral law, is all channeled and based on what was given to Torah Mount Sinai. Like Rabbi Akiva told the students, where do you know this from? It was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The bottom line of any innovation that any student, any part of the oral law, that's how you know if it's truly the oral law, not somebody made up. If it's based on something that came from the Torah. It has to be come from that divine inspiration. Even though it has the human involvement, it also has a divine revelation in it. So in the written Torah, divine revelation is the one that's more dominant. While the human interaction is just merely, if you want to call it a tool to be able to express it. While in the oral law, it's where God is, so to speak, takes to the back and allows the human to take it forward, but it's all based on what God says. To take it even a step further, if you want to put it this way, is this explains a significant difference between the written law and the oral dimension of Torah. In the written that law, it's not just the content that's holy. It's the actual words that are holy itself. That means many laws in the Torah are extracted from details that there's an extra vav, that it was written this way and it was written that way, there's extra letter, an extra word. Every single word or letter in the Torah is exact. That's why you all know that if there's a broken letter in the Torah scroll, the entire Torah is not kosher. Why? Because it's not just the content, if the wording itself is godly. God told Moses, write these exact words. Not only these exact words, the shape of them, the way they are written, big, small, large, whatever it may be. Every single thing. And in lesson number two, we're actually going to analyze some of these extractions that we learn from certain letters and words. And that's why it's called the written Torah. Written meaning that the wording itself is also Torah. Why? Because the wording is what was divinely communicated. The written Torah always must be taught from a text. That's why, as we learned the first statement that we learned in today's class, the written Torah cannot be said orally, and the oral Torah cannot be said written, is because the written Torah must always be taught from a text. The words themselves contain holiness. As we know, the first thing that we teach a young child to learn when he learns how to read Torah is that we teach him the words of the Torah. Torah, Tziv, Allah, Namaisha, because just verbally saying the words, whether they understand it or not, is considered learning Torah. On the other hand, in the case of the oral law, although much of it today has actually been written down, it remains essentially an oral communication in which its content is not necessarily, uh, and the, word, the content is more important than this actual wording. Even though, yes, because it was orally transmitted and there were some statements that were written, so therefore even written statements are debated how it was written, so you have a little bit of that as well, but it's not as strong. That means if they'll find another writing or another way it was written, they can always compare and contrast, which is not that way by the Torah. And so far, the Talmudic transition and halachic transition, the way even today a rabbi gets semicha, rabbinic ordination, is from one rabbi to the next. There's something which is passed down from one teacher to a disciple. 
and therefore it has to be taught through the original text, and so on. Another thing that the Rebbe points out, a difference between the two forms of the Torah, also has a legal implication in halach and Jewish law. Before learning Torah, we are required to recite a blessing for studying Torah. This blessing, you notice when a person gets an aliyah, they say that blessing. Mm. What if a person has no clue what the Torah reader is reading? Can he still say that blessing? And the answer is yes. You can make a blessing on the Torah whether you understand the written law or not. However, if you are learning the oral law and you have no clue what you're talking about, you cannot make a blessing. That means if I were to take a page of Talmud and just go blah, 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 just read down the page and I got zero clue what I read, I did not learn Torah. In order for the oral law to be considered studying Torah, I have to intellectually understand what I read. The written law, on the other hand, if I read seven phrases of the of the Chumash, or seven chapters, and even though I got no clue, I don't know Hebrew, whatever it may be, I've still accomplished, I've still studied Torah. For that reason, as we read a few days ago, the virtue of just saying Tehillim, just saying the words of Tehillim, whether you understand it or not, that in itself, Psalms, has already a quality to it. Let's see it inside text number 11. With the written Torah, a person says the blessing on the Torah and they read it even though they don't understand what they are saying. With the oral law, however, a person cannot say the blessing unless they understand it and they say and that what they are saying. With regards to the oral law, learning entails human understanding. So if we want to summarize this in simple meaning, this would be written law, you fulfill the mitzvah of learning Torah just by saying the words, while the oral law, the mitzvah is fulfilled by understanding the content. So, so far, just to conclude and to summarize what we've learned today. In today's lesson, we surveyed the contents of the 24 books of the Torah. That we know that the Torah of the Tanakh contains all the genres, whether it's ethics, history, philosophy, and law. We know that the Torah and the written, we learned about the written law and the relationship that it has with the oral law. And in the next five lessons... Now that we've covered the written law, the next five lessons we will be discussing the different genres in the oral law. In your map that you have, you can see over there the major books that we will be discussing, whether it's the halacha, Kabbalah, the mystical dimension, philosophy, ethics, and all of those, all the coming lessons that we will discover. As we mentioned, all of these genres, whether it's halacha, Jewish law, Kabbalah, which is mysticism, ethics, whatever it may be, all of them, are all based and all rooted in the written law, and they are basically an expansion of what the written law is, and using the oral law as the field to be able to understand and appreciate what the oral law is all about. And as if we go back to the analogy of the DNA, the written Torah is what we would call, in today's language, the source code, the map, the code that's written behind it, of all the categories that are found in the Torah, and we will always be tracing back Whenever we study something in the oral law, what we are going to endeavor to do is to look back and to see where does this originally stem from? What cell in the written law did this oral law, did this Kabbalistic philosophy come from? Did this Hasidic thought come from? Did this halacha come from? Where does it all stem from? Because it all originates from the written law. To conclude, let's conclude just with a statement from Rabbi Yeshaya Levi Horowitz, one of the famous mystics and Kabbalists of the 16th century, and he says as follows. Text number 12 on page 23. In the blessing recited before the Torah, we bless our you God who gives us the Torah, the truth that's already given to us, the Torah, on Mount Sinai. 
Yet he still gives us the Torah perpetually. This matter requires some elaboration. If God gave us the Torah, why are we saying he gives the Torah, like in the present? So he explains. The Torah says these words of the Torah, God spoke to you entire assembly on the mountain, a great voice did not cease. Rashi explains the meaning of the words did not cease in accordance with the translation of Unklus, it did not stop. For it is a powerful voice that endures forever. Rashi also offers a second interpretation to the words, Velo Yasaf, it did not do any it did not anymore. That God did not again speak openly and publicly as he did at Mount Sinai. These are the profa- there's a profound significance in these two interpretations as they are simultaneously true. The divine voice spoke to Torah at Sinai and did not anymore. As all subsequent laws and edicts instituted by the sages throughout the generations were not explicitly commanded by God at the time. At the same time, it did not cease, for everything was included in potential form within the voice. It is only that for everything there is a time and a season, like Ecclesiastic says. And the time has not yet come for the potential emerge into actuality, and that depends on the initiative of those down here below. In accordance with their nature and their abilities, in accordance with their qualities of the soul of each generation. The sages of each generation were then roused to actualize from the potential in accordance with the time and season. Thus the sages did not invent anything from their own minds, God forbid, but rather actualized the divine intent. Rabbi Yeshaya Levi Horowitz is telling us here very clearly, nothing is new. It was all taught already by God in Mount Sinai. All we are doing is extrapolating, getting it from them, because the Torah continues to be given, as in the blessing we say, God continues to give the Torah today. It is just that DNA, infertility, or driving a car, whatever it may be, would not apply 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago, so therefore was not extrapolated. Today, that we have all these things with the sages and with the tools that they were given with the Torah, with the microscopes that we have, we can dig in deep into the Torah, find the sources for it, and be able to extrapolate, and we see how the Torah is constantly, it's a gift that keeps on giving that God gave us in the Torah. Next week, next week we talk, we get on to the Midrash. You want to know if it's Medrash or Midrash? That's what it is. We will be talking about what once the written law and the oral law and we talk about the medrash as a set of books is it a mythology is it a work or explanation on the torah the different layers that the written law has to be able to understand and appreciate the actual written law next week same time same place i'm looking forward any questions was it too long? No, it was perfect. Okay. okay. Thank you. There's, by the way, there's extra readings in the book, and there's a lot of other stuff, historical overviews and sketches mm-hmm. with the prophets and prophetesses are, and there's a lot of good stuff there that you would enjoy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Oh, yeah. Next time, Josh can take you. Yeah. Right there. Right there. Right there. Right there. Right yeah, right across the street. I have a teaser, so I'm not allowed to drive. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 All right.